Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. First Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I titled this, and again, I don't always title messages, but this is Examples from the Exodus, and you'll understand why I titled that as we get into uh, chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate... Uh, excuse me, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So here Paul is going back to the Old Testament to make a point to the Corinthian church here. And first of all, he says, all our fathers were under the cloud. Of course, he's speaking of the Jewish people, the children of Israel. Um, they were under the cloud. What is that referring to? Well, you know that. If you've been to Sunday school, you've been to church anytime, or read your Bible, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about after the children of Israel left Egypt, they were miraculously delivered, and, uh, and then they're in the wilderness, and the Lord God led them. It says in Exodus 13, verse 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. So the main purpose was to lead them, to lead the way, to give them light so they could go whether it was daytime or night. They just had to follow the cloud stay under the cloud, literally. They just had to follow it, and, and, and the Lord God would lead them. And so all the children of Israel, it wasn't just a select few, they were all led by God. They were all led through the wilderness. They all passed through the sea. And of course, that's referring earlier to when they came through, uh, you know, they came up to the Red Sea and the Lord God miraculously parted the waters to allow them to pass through the sea. That's referred to in Exodus chapter 14, verse 22. It says, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord God gave them a way of escape from the Egyptians. It's kind of fascinating, and we'll touch on it a little bit later, but every time it mentions them passing through the Red Sea, it says that there was walls of water on both sides, on the right and the left. And so it, it seems like the Lord's speaking about the protection as, I mean, would you want to walk through? You see these pillars. I'm not. Who knows how tall these walls? Can you imagine walking through there, going, "Oh man, I hope those water, those walls hold up." But God was protecting them. So they they all were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And then he says they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does that mean? Well, to be baptized uh, means to be baptized into the belief, the profession, or the observance. Of anything. So what does it mean to be baptized into Moses? Well, be, to be baptized into the name of someone, it means to be identified with what that name or that uh, of that one or what that person stands for. So being baptized now, so Moses, well, his name itself means drawn out. Something drawn out in the references to water. And you know the story of Moses, a little baby. You know, the, the, the Egyptians at that time, they were killing all the Hebrews 
uh, babies two years and under. And so his mother put him in a basket, made a, made a reed basket and floated him in the Nile River, had his older sister kind of watching by to make sure everything was okay. And you know the story, it was delivered by the, the uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter and, and raised in, in, the, in the palace there. And so God had miraculously delivered Moses from death in Egypt because all his contemporaries, they were all dead. They were all killed. God miraculously delivered Moses from dead, uh, from death, excuse me, from Egypt. God prepared Moses to be the deliverer of God's people. I mean, he was raised in the palace. He learned all these important things, and God evidently or obviously was using these things to raise and to prepare Moses to be the deliverer of God's people. When they were in the wilderness, and actually even before that, before, God, uh, before Moses even went to deliver the children of Israel, you remember he tried once and it was kind of, didn't work out too good as he did it in his own strength there. Um, and then later he goes into Midian and becomes a shepherd for many, many years. I think it was like 40 years. And during that time, God revealed himself to Moses. Later on, God would give his law to Moses. And so God was revealing himself to Moses. God was transforming Moses, and we'll see that, or we did see that when we went through the book of Exodus, that God transformed Moses into being an intercessor for God's people. So not only was God using Moses to deliver the children of Israel, and God had prepared them, delivered them, but God was even uh, doing a work in Moses himself to change his heart, to be more like the Lord. Well, so being baptized into Moses, listen, all the children of Israel were delivered by the Lord, miraculously, just like Moses were. God was preparing the children of Israel to be his people as he was leading them through the wilderness. During that time, God was revealing himself to his people, just like he had to Moses. And God was also going to transform the children of Israel into a nation that he says that you'll be a blessing to all other nations of the world. And so God was doing this work in the children of Israel. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. It says, for, the drink, uh, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. God miraculously provided them manna. The Bible calls it bread from heaven. God miraculously pro uh, provided water for them out of the rock. And, and then Paul says something interesting here. He says, for the rock that followed them, he says that rock was Christ. And he's kind of building on a rabbinic tradition. In the rabbinic tradition, there's a couple variations. One of them, they said that that rock, remember when he, when he hit the rock and the rock split and the water came out, that that rock literally followed them wherever they went. That's a rabbinic tradition. Others say that the stream of water from the rock followed them wherever they went. Who knows? We don't know, right? But uh, Paul is using that, uh, and evidently that rock prefigured, pointed to, and in fact was Jesus Christ. And you know, you look in the New Testament, Jesus in John 6, 22, he says, I am the bread of life. And in John 7, he talks about himself being the living water. And so it's very interesting. But notice in these verses that I just read, verses 1 through 4, it says all. That's a thing that occurs frequently. All the children of Israel, they all were delivered. They all were protected. They all were guided. They all were baptized into Moses. They all were fed spiritual food and water. But then look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Most of them. You know, that's a very big understatement in the Bible. 
Because literally an entire generation saved two people, Caleb and Joshua, died in the wilderness. They never made it into the promised land. What happened to the rest of that entire generation? Well, in verses 6 through 10, Paul is going to explain why God was not uh, well pleased with that entire generation. That generation, that they all experienced God's deliverance. They all were protected by the Lord. They all were guided by the Lord. They all were provided for by the Lord. And yet most of them died in the wilderness because they, they, uh, they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't follow him. Verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So all these things that Paul is going to relate to us, you know, these, these are our examples. Uh, you know, they're not just great flannel graph stories for Sunday school, although they do make great stories for Sunday school. They're not, it's not just a plot for a Cecil B. DeMille movie. You know, these things, they literally happened, and they were written for example for us that we might learn from them, that we might be encouraged by them, or maybe to be warned against them. It says that uh, some of that entire generation loved and desired after evil things. And I think what Paul is referring to is back in November, uh, November, <laughs> Numbers. <laughs> uh, hang on a second. <laughs> uh, numbers. <laughs> numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Let me read it to you. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. It's interesting because they were slaves. Um, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So they were lusting after meat. Now does that mean that meat is evil? In fact, Paul's going to talk about that a little bit later in chapter 10. Or excuse me, later on in chapter 10 and chapter 11. Is meat evil? No, not in and of itself. But listen, God had provided for the children of Israel food and water. Something, and, and what the deal was that they craved after something that the Lord was not providing them at this time. It wasn't that they wouldn't eat meat again. It was during that time God gave them manna. That was what he gave them to, to sustain them. And you see, for you and I, the problem arises when God's provided me something and yet my flesh wants something else. Whatever God's given me is not good enough. I want something else. Not being satisfied with what the Lord has provided, but seeking my own will. You see, again, these things were written for our example. You and I, just like the children of Israel, we've been delivered. Jesus is revealing himself to us day by day as we're into God's word, as we're growing in our walk with him. And he's also molding you and I into the man or the woman that he planned for us to be. God's doing it. We're, we're in the same boat with the children of Israel in that respect. But you see, lusting after things not meant for us is going to trip up our walk with the Lord. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It will affect your walk with the Lord. If you're lusting after fleshly things that God doesn't have for you, doesn't, maybe not at this time. 
Verse 7, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's literally quoted in uh, Exodus 32, verse 6. But I want to read something out of Psalm 106. Psalm 106, kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's more of a commentary on what went on during that time. But in verses 19 through 22 of Psalm 106, it talks about the children of Israel. It says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. So some of that entire generation became idolaters. What does that mean? It means putting something before your relationship with the Lord. That can be anything. It can also be anyone. If you put a person, if that a person gets in between your relationship with the Lord. Again, and you're, you're going to say you're repeating yourself, but there's a reason why. You and I, like the children of Israel, we've been delivered. God's delivered us. God's revealing himself to us. God is molding you and I into the man or the woman that he has planned for us to be. But putting something in between our relationship, between ourselves and our relationship with the Lord, it's going to distance us from the Lord. John says this in 1 John 5, 21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. For you and I, don't let anything get between you and the Lord God. Don't substitute your worship for anyone or anything else than the Lord. Verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Some of that entire generation committed sexual immorality. And that refers back to Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25, the Moabites, they sent their women uh, to go and to seduce the Israelite men. And it worked. The women of Moab, they, they, the, 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 children, the men of the children of Israel committed sexual immorality with the women of Moab which led them to worshiping the idols of the Moabites. And as a result, the Bible says, Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Israel was joined to the, their idol worship because of the sexual immorality. Again, you and I, just like the children of Israel, we've been delivered. God's revealing himself to us. He's molding us into the man or the woman that he planned us to be. But sexual immorality joins us to other individuals, uh, to an other individual in a way that doesn't glorify God. Listen, this is very important. Sexual immorality can kill a marriage. It can crush a family. It can cancel out your and my witness, and it can disqualify us from serving in ministry. It is so devastating. And that's why Paul, and we read it in uh, chapter 6, verse 18 a few weeks ago. Paul says this, flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Get as far away from it as you can. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It can destroy so much. We need to flee from it. Verse 9 nor let us tempt Christ 
as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So some of that entire generation tempted the Lord. What does it mean? I didn't think God could be tempted. Well, the word means to almost, to, to, it's, it, the sense is to wear out the Lord, uh, to grieve him, putting God to the test, refusing to believe him or his word. And that's related back to Numbers chapter 21. What occurred in Numbers chapter 21? Well, the children of Israel were in a place of testing and patience. They didn't have water. They didn't, you know, things were, were a little bit bleak where they were at there. And they needed to wait on the Lord for his provision. But the Bible says that they grew discouraged. And in Numbers 21 verse 4 it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And this is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And listen to this. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. They loathe the bread that the Lord God gave them. Worthless bread. If you have a King James Version, it says light bread. And what they're referring to, what they meant was it's without substance or nutritious quality. And yet, the Lord provided them 40 years, this bread, and it sustained them as, I mean, they're walking. They're not just sitting around eating. They're walking. They're expending energy, and it sustained them for 40 years. And yet, in Numbers chapter 21, they were accusing the Lord of having ill intentions towards them. They were ungrateful for his provisions. And again, you and I, like the children of Israel, again, these are examples for us. We've been delivered. God's revealing himself to you and I. He's molding you and I into the man or the woman that he planned us to be. But when you and I grumble and complain about what have been provided, what we've been provided with, or maybe we're grumbling about what station in life we currently find ourselves in, or we feel that we're being cheated out of something in life, remember, you're complaining against the Lord God then. Because he has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And it's an individual plan and an individual purpose. And what we're doing by grumbling and complaining about what the Lord has blessed us with, we're assigning ill intentions to the Lord. That he's out to get us. Or he doesn't, he doesn't want us to enjoy life or whatever it is. And, and so we're complaining and we're grumbling against him. Paul says this in Ephesians 4 verse 30 and 31. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. When we grumble and we complain against the Lord, man, we're grieving that Holy, the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Some of that entire generation complained. And I was going to look back at what are, what are all the examples? Man, there's too many to list. Throughout their 40 years of wandering, they complained the entire time. That word complain, I'm, I'm reading out of the New, uh, New King James. The King James Version says murmur. And uh, that word is an onomatopoeia. You might go, no, I don't have to use a restroom. It's a, the word is onomatopoeia. And uh, <clears throat> if you don't know what that means, anybody know what that means already? Okay, well, 
There's probably a few people that do. They just don't raise their hands. It's a word that resembles a sound that's being described. For example, cuckoo, that's a word that describes what a cuckoo bird's. I don't know. It's a, it's a word that describes the cuckoo sound. Or meow. You know, even a lot of you guys are talking about cats this morning. That word meow, it's a sound that a cat makes, and yet that's the word comes from the sound. Or boom. That's a word that describes the sound. That's, that's an onomatopoeia. I like saying that after a while. Try saying it real fast, though. But, um, but that's what this murmur is, because it's the sound of murmur, 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 murmur. Listen, this is what the definition of it is. To mutter, to grumble, to say anything against in a low tone. And here's some examples. It's the sound of cooing doves. You ever heard doves coo? It's really low and kind of... Uh, it's the sound of those who confer secretly together. You're, you know, you're in a group. There's a, lot of, there's a few people, and they're kind of like hushed tones. You know, and then as soon as you walk over there, they're like... You know, they stop. It's like, they're here. It's the sound of those who discontentedly complain. That's that murmur sound. Now... While tempting the Lord that we talked about there in verse 9 describes, I think, more of a heart attitude. You know, you're, you're, you're assigning ill intentions to the Lord. Murmuring or complaining in verse 10 describes when that heart attitude that started maybe back in verse 9, it gets vocalized to others around you. In other words, now it's not, you're not just feeling it yourself. Now you're sharing it with those around you. You and I, like the children of Israel, we've been delivered. God's miraculously delivered all of us, if you have a relationship with the Lord this morning. God's revealing himself to you and I as we read his word, as we, as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. He's revealing more and more of himself to us. God is molding each one of us into the man or woman that he's planned for us to do. But you see, murmuring or complaining, like it says in the New King James, vocally to others, it's like cancer. It grows. And as it grows, it consumes and as it consumes, or whatever it consumes, it destroys. And when you and I murmur or complain against one another, when we give voice to our complaints secretly among others, we damage the reputation of others. We introduce ill thoughts of someone that maybe it wasn't there before. You know, maybe, you know, you're walking, someone comes up to you and says, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? You know, and they're, they're complaining about someone. And up until then, you thought they were the greatest person and all of a sudden, like, oh, I didn't know the man, I didn't know they were like that, you know. You're damaging their reputation. You're introducing ill thoughts that maybe weren't even there before. We dismantle the unity of the fellowship. How do we do that? Well, you cause sides to happen. You know, there's dissensions, there's divisions going on. And we develop strife among others. And if you want to know about strife, man, the Bible has a lot to say about strife. You can do a Bible study on strife, but I got some news for you. It's all negative. There's not one positive verse on strife. If you cause strife, it's, it's bad. It's not good. There are multiple examples of the children of Israel grumbling and complaining during their exodus from Egypt, but it all came to a head in Numbers chapters 13 and Numbers chapter 14. That's when the first 40 years, they, or they, not, it wasn't even 40 years, they had gone through the wilderness and they got to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. And so God told Moses, send 12 spies in, one from each tribe, and have them check out the land and bring back a report. And so 12 spies went into the land of Canaan. 
and they came back and 10 of the 12 spies, the Bible says, gave a bad report. And as a result of that, the people murmured among themselves. Now there was two individuals, Caleb and Joshua, and they were two of the 12 spies. They attempted to quiet the people. In other words, they were trying to stop the murmuring. And they tried to encourage the people. Hey, hey, yeah, it may, it may, there are giants in the land. It's, it's, but man, God's given us this land. He's promised us. Let's go for it. Let's, let's walk in faith. He, they tried to encourage the people to trust the Lord and to obey his command. Listen, do you think grumbling and complaining to others is like, hey, I just got to vent to somebody. And so I'm going to pull this person aside. I just want to tell them about how bad I'm feeling about some situation or some person. It's harmless. I just need to get it off my chest. Listen to this. Ten grumblers and complainers impacted over a couple million children of Israel and caused them to grumble and complain and all of them to sin against the Lord. It's a real temptation more for some than for others. If you're given to grumbling and complaining, it's, it's a harder temptation for you. If you're like, everything's always bright and cheery, maybe it's not that much of a temptation for you. But if it is a real temptation to give voice of your, to your complaint to others, now we have to stop it. We have to stop, and you know, initiating it. We, you know, if you're the one that, if you're if you're given to that, you need to stop. If somebody comes to you, maybe you're not given to it, but somebody comes to you and they start complaining about it, man, we have to pour water on that little flame and extinguish the gossip before it becomes a wildfire and destroys a, a fellowship. Because it happens. It happens all the time. Listen, the enemy, Satan. He doesn't have to send wolves right in the door here to attack us, full frontal attack. All he has to do is get the sheep to bite and devour each other, and he's done his work. Man, he just gets, he gets people to murmur amongst themselves. And so Paul says this, second, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. It's funny, my wife used to always quote this to our kids. She'd say, go out and mow the lawn. I don't want to mow the lawn. And then she'd quote this verse. So we all know it by heart practically. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a uh, crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Man, do everything without complaining and without disputing. Paul goes on here in verse 11. Now all these things, all these things that he's described here in verses 6 through 10, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Listen, the entire nation of Israel, they all were delivered, they all were protected. They all were guided. They all were baptized into Moses. They all were fed spiritual food and water. But with most of them, the Bible says, God was not well pleased. Again, an understatement. All but two of an entire generation died in the wilderness. We don't want to be lumped in with the most in that case. We want to be lumped in with just those two. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. 
Don't think you're above falling in any one of those areas described above. So what do we do? What do you do? What do I do when I'm tempted to sin in one of those areas? Paul goes on here, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Listen, your individual circumstances may be unique. Whatever's tempting you, maybe you know, tempted to be angry or tempted whatever, lusting, whatever it might be, your individual circumstances may be unique, but the nature of your temptation is not. The Bible says it's common to man. And so as a result of that, you and I, we can learn from those in the Bible who faced the same types of temptations. We can learn from it. That's, that's the whole point Paul is trying to get across here. Not only that, but we can pray to the Lord regarding our temptation. Listen, the Bible says he was in all points tempted just as we were and yet without sin. And he can identify with you and I in our temptations. And then Paul says God is faithful. God is faithful. He knows what your and he knows what my limitations are. And he won't allow us to be tempted above what we're able to handle. You might not think, I, you know, that's overwhelming, I can't, I can't resist. And stuff. God knows whether you can or can't. We're studying James on Wednesday nights, and I know we've already talked about this, but the, we, we discover in James that God doesn't tempt us to sin, okay? God, God's not the tempter. He's not tempting us to sin, but he does allow us to be tempted. Remember what I said earlier, he's molding us into the man or woman that he planned for us to be. And I think dealing with temptation is part of that molding and shaping process. And so he, it's interesting here, it says he allows us to be tempted. It sounds kind of like a passive. You know, he's, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow them to be tempted. But listen what he does. He actively makes the way of escape from temptation. So he allows the temptation, but he actively gives us a way to get out of our temptation, to escape it. Point in case, the children of Israel, they're at the edge of the Red Sea. They're between the proverbial rock and a hard place. I mean, think about it. Their backs are up against the wall, literally. They, I mean, they were at the edge of the Red Sea, and most people that figure out where they were at, they, they had uh, cliffs on both sides of them. So they couldn't go to the right, they couldn't go to the left. They got the Red Sea right in front of them, and behind them, the army of the Egyptians are coming. That's an overwhelming situation. See, temptation can be like that sometimes. You feel like, man, I'm, I have no choice. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it's too overwhelming. Listen, temptation wouldn't be temptation if it, if it didn't have this powerful hold on us. And we're not all tempted in the same way. Listen, it's a warm day. It's not as hot as it was going to be. But can you imagine on your way here to church this morning, if it was really hot, yesterday it was really hot, driving around, and you see a dead deer on the road. And with the heat, it's a little bit, you know, bloated, and, you know, it doesn't smell too nice. Um, would you be tempted to eat it? Nobody's, no. Part of that gag reflex starts to kicking in. No, you know, that might not be a temptation to you. But how many of you, if you're walking by a bakery or something, you smell fresh bread bacon in the oven? 
By the way, if you're trying to sell your house, you know what they say one of the good things to do to, to, to like stage your house? Is to get those loaves of bread that you can buy, you know, those frozen loaves, thaw them out, and when you're going to show your house, just pop it in the oven and uh, let it bake, and they'll smell it, they'll smell that fresh bread, and it's like, wow, this kitchen was meant for me. Um, but listen, you might not be tempted to eat a bloated deer on the way home today from church that you see on the side of the road. Um, you know, that's not it. If the Lord said, don't eat bloated deer, I'd go, oh, you know what? I can deal with that, Lord. I won't, I won't stumble in that area. But eating bread, that tempts me. I'll be honest with you. You, you know, I don't have a problem with a, a, a no bloated deer carcass diet. Um, but a low-carb diet, I tried it before. It's torture. It's torture. You know, I think it could possibly even be sinful. I mean, after all, the Bible says to pray each day for our daily bread. So I don't know, and I don't want to go against the Bible, you know. So it's biblical to like bread. But that's a temptation for me. So you might be tempted in areas, maybe some of these areas are not temptations for you. But I tell you, when, whatever it is that, that you are given to that, that is a powerful pull on you, that's what temptation's like. It's like the children of Israel backed up against the Red Sea. They can't go anywhere, and that enemy is coming right for them. But listen, what did the Lord do? The Lord made the way of escape for them. He opened up a path in the middle of the Red Sea, and they were able to escape on dry ground. The Lord doesn't promise in his word to give you the strength to endure the temptation. You know that? He doesn't give you the, he doesn't give you the strength to fight the temptation. Sometimes we feel if I can just hunker down and, and you know, I can, I can, you know, I, I can hold out. Uh, it doesn't work out too good. He didn't give the children of Israel the ability to defeat the Egyptians in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He'd go, okay, they're going to come here. You guys are going to fight. You're going to conquer them. He didn't do that. What did he do? He provided a way to escape, to flee, to run. And that way of escape implies just that. It implies getting up and walking, leaving the place of temptation. Escape implies movement away from something. God provides a way to get away from that temptation for you and I. You might be thinking here, and I've thought this many times, why doesn't God just keep me from all? I mean, why does God allow me to be tempted? Why not just keep me from all temptation so I'll be, you know, I'll be this great person all my life? There's a lot of things vying for your and my worship in our life. And Satan desires our worship. The world desires your and my worship. Our flesh, my own flesh desires to be worshiped. And the Lord allows us to choose to worship him or not. You see, God doesn't, he didn't make robots. He wants a relationship with you and I. And that's why, uh, you know, he's delivered us, and that's why uh, he chooses to reveal more of himself to us. Why? Because he wants that relationship with you and I. And the Lord has delivered us um, from the power and the penalty of sin, but he wants to trust us, or excuse me, he wants us to trust him with his word. You know, the Lord says, this is sin, this is not sin. And so, you know, we need to take him at his word. Okay, Lord, you're, you're saying this is sin. I don't want to do this, and I need to stay away from these things that you warn me again. Listen, the Lord knows what's going to hurt you and I. The Lord knows what will bring death in our lives. And the Lord, again, like I said before, he's molding you and I. He's making us into the image 
uh, the man or the woman that he planned for us to be. And I think part of that molding is burning away those things that hinder our relationship with him. He wants you and I to recognize his voice as he's providing that way of escape. And he wants you and I to trust him as we follow him in obedience through the way of escape. Again, remember I mentioned earlier when the children of Israel went through that, the, the Red Sea, the Bible says there was water. Uh, the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And all I can think about it, again, it's, it's protection. I think it's speaking of protection, but it's also speaking of no distraction. I mean, I don't know how tall the walls were, but I'm guessing once they get down in the ground there, they're looking around and they don't see anything to their sides, to the right or to the left. They just had to look forward and just follow the Lord, follow him. I think that's what the Lord wants you and I to do. You get into a place of temptation. Don't start you know, panicking. Just start following the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? How, how do I handle this? How do I navigate? I need your strength, Lord. Turning to him. And he will provide the way of escape. But it takes us, you know, then we have to actually initiate that going, that escaping, that, that walking, that going in that direction away from that temptation. You know, I was reflecting on this, that molding and shaping that's going on in your and my life. I think, I, I think, and I think the scriptures pretty much supports that, that it's going to end when your and my life is, is finished, right? It's just this period of life that you and I are in, that's that period when the Lord is molding us into the man or the woman that he wants us to be. I think when this is life is over and we're in, we're in heaven or, or the millennium, I, you know, I don't think God's still molding us. I think that work has been done. And, you know, we have an inkling of what eternity is going to be like as the scripture reveals that to us, but only the Lord really, really, truly knows what it's going to be like. And he knows what characteristics are important uh, for life in eternity. And so right now he's developing those characters, characteristics. He's developing godly character in us, in each of us throughout our lives. Listen, it's too easy to grumble and complain about the things of this world. It really is. But listen, I, I, somebody quoted this to me the other day, and I think it fits here too. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. If you're given to grumbling and complaining, for example, can you trust him in the place that he has you right now, you know, your lot in life, so to speak? Because, listen, it's for your peace. The Lord doesn't have evil plans for you. If you're lusting for sexual immorality, God's not withholding any joy from you. He knows that outside of marriage, sex is damaging, it's destructive. And so he wants you to have that full blessing of in, within the, the marriage, the confines of, of marriage between a husband and a wife. God has no ill intentions. He's not holding out on you. He's got a purpose for everything that you and I go through, and he's got a plan, and he's preparing us for eternity. And so for you and I, whatever situation we're dealing with, the point for the, the, the thing for us is, will we trust him in that? Know that he's got good plans for us. Whatever the situation we're going through, and keep our eyes fixed on him and not on our circumstances. That's a challenge, but that's what we need to do. Verse 14, therefore, I think he's just summing up everything here, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
Again, don't let anything or anyone get between you and your relationship with the Lord. Don't try to serve two masters. It does not work. The Bible says that. You know the one that loves you and has a plan and a purpose for your life. He's been revealing himself more and more to you. That's why I encourage you, man, be in your word. Read the Bible. Pray. Spend time with the Lord. Be in fellowship with those, with other believers. You, the Lord is through all these things. He's revealing more and more of himself to us so that we know him. You know, it's one thing we pray for the kids, that they would understand that God loves them and he has a plan and a purpose for them. That's my goal here in Calvary Chapel, Rochester, that all of us would know uh, would know the one who loves us. That's Jesus. And as a result of that, to pursue him, to cling to him, and to flee from anything else that would hinder that relationship. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.